don't have a seat, uh, please uh, remain standing. You remember we're doing this prayer series, and so we're going through the Lord's Prayer. And so if this is your first time here, we're getting ready to pray in just a second. But these seven weeks, we've been trying to unlearn and relearn how to pray. Many of us have fallen into some very powerless habits of prayer, and yet we never changed direction along the way. We just kept up with those same habits. And so we're trying to unlearn some of those things and try to relearn some things that actually might work for us. And so we've been using the Lord's Prayer. So we're going to say that together. We're going to say it twice. Again, this week, we're going to cheat and use the screen uh, this morning, uh, the first time. And then we're going to see if we have it memorized after seven weeks. We'll leave it up on the screen so in case any of you want to cheat which is sin which is against the will of God (laughs) just kidding all right ready our father in heaven hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. All right, everybody, close your eyes. Put your hand in front of your face. If you need to peek, just move your fingers. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. You can have a seat. Well done. Well done. Grab your Bible. Turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Jesus is teaching his followers on a mountain, and he teaches them how to pray, which we just have prayed together, and this is verse 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, which is great news for me, because when I'm being tempted, often I feel ashamed of the temptation, And so I think our natural instinct is when we're being tempted to try to hide the temptation from God. But Jesus gives us permission here to just be honest that I'm in the middle of this temptation. And what does it say? We're asking, uh, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That word deliver, it, it means to drag. That literally we're asking God to drag us away from evil, which if you've ever been in a pattern of addictive sin, you know that that's the kind of force that it takes to free ourselves from that habitual sin. We have to be dragged away from it. If we could have just walked away from it, many of us would. And so we're given permission here to, number one, be honest about our temptation, and we're given permission to ask God to rescue us from that temptation. I read a a study that came out not too long ago about temptation, and it listed the top few things that people are tempted by, or at least they were willing to be honest about. 66 per- 66% of people just like you and I um, are tempted to eat too much. 58% are tempted to worry and be anxious. 57% of people are tempted to procrastinate. 42% uh, are tempted to spend too much time in different media outlets, internet, television, Um, things like that. 
Uh, 40% of us are tempted to be lazy. 33% of us are tempted to spend too much money. 22% of us are tempted towards gossip. 20% are tempted towards jealousy. 14% pornography. 12% lying or cheating. 12% of us are tempted to go off on someone via text or email. I know nobody would ever want to do something like that. But maybe 12% of you would. And then 3% are tempted towards alcohol or drug abuse. Now, when I read that list, I went, eh, wrong. Somebody's not being honest. 66% of us are tempted to eat too much. That's like saying on a job interview, what's your weakness? My weakness is I show up to work too early. You know. (laughs) Yeah, what are you tempted by? Man, what really traps you into sin? Food. Now, I think that you can eat too much. Yes, absolutely. But... That sounds like a very safe confession. You know, everyone will identify with that, especially everyone in this city. You know, yeah, I went to whatever restaurant and just ate too much. Well, let me pray for you. You know, no, I mean, we, we all get it. We all get it. You've never once been judged for that. Worry, that's an all skate. Procrastinate, too much time on media. Those are all safe confessions. I'm thinking that the real meat of the confession starts at gossip with 22%. I mean, seriously, only 22% of us are ever tempted to gossip? Wrong. 110% of us, because some of us are doing it more than once per day. You know, those are the confessions uh, that are real. Those are the temptations, the gossip, the jealousy, the pornography, the lying, the cheating, the, the abuse of, of some kind or another. And then at the end of the study, they asked people why they thought they gave in to the temptation. I just thought it was a really great question. One percent of them said, because I'm a terrible person, which I thought, well, that's, you know, I guess true. Maybe. I don't know. Twenty uh, percent percent said as a way of escape and 50 percent said I have no idea which I thought was really the meat of what I wanted to talk about 50 percent of us when we fall into temptation when we fall into sin we don't really know why we do it which I understand that I remember when Amanda and I were dating You know, every relationship kind of has their hot button issues, like the topics that always cause conflict. Can you just give me a shake of heads if you know what I'm talking about? It's just like either avoid or go in armed. You know what I'm saying, right? And it was always my fault every time. It was always my fault, my weakness, my insecurity. And I remember after about the third in our relationship, I'm like, I'm not going to say anything. The next time we talk about it, I'm just not going to say anything. I'm broken on the inside, and I'm just not going to say anything. But then we would be on the phone because we dated long distance, and then that topic would come up, and I will just, don't say anything, don't say anything, don't say anything. Just, it's for your own good. Don't say anything. And I, like, I just couldn't help it. You know what I'm talking about? Like, you just couldn't help it. And you've been there. Sometimes you have no idea why you do the things that you do, why... Even though we know something is wrong, we do it anyway. How do we fall into temptation so easily? I think it's because we don't recognize when we're being tempted. And that's what I want us to walk away with this morning. Some discernment, some warning signs, so that you and I can know this is a moment of temptation. This is not just a moment of me thinking some things. This is not just a a moment of me living my life. This is real life temptations because I think if you can understand I'm being tempted in this moment we won't fall into as many moments and definitely we won't say well I don't know 
why I did something like that. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. There are two kinds of temptations that I want to set before you this morning. The first one is just common, plain temptation that all of us experience. Acts chapter 4, verse 34. It says, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So this is describing the very first church, the very first community of Jesus' followers. Jesus has just started being preached as resurrected from the dead. They've assembled into these communities, and there are people in the communities who have needs, but really no one had any ongoing needs because there was so much generosity there that people were saying, hey, I have a house. I don't need a house, or maybe I have a house. I don't need this big a house. I'm going to sell it, and I'm going to give the money that I make off the selling of that house or land to the church, and then the church would use it to meet the needs of the poor within the church, which is the same thing that we do every single week. Now, there's not very often that people are selling their homes or lands and and, and giving all that money to the church, and there would never be any pressure to do that, but we pass those plates every single week, week those buckets, and you generously put money or tithes uh, and your offerings into those. Some of you give online, and we use that money to meet the needs of some of our church family and to meet the needs of the people in our city. So same kind of things, but the level of generosity is just off the charts here, specifically with a guy named Barnabas. Barnabas. And Barnabas, uh, you've maybe heard about in Acts, he becomes a very important person that he was esteemed in these early communities because of the sacrifice that he makes. Now look what happens in chapter 5, verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Now, when we read it, just on the surface, it looks like Ananias gets in trouble because he doesn't give all of his money, and that doesn't seem that fair to us. Now, if you keep reading the story, they get in major trouble. Ananias and Sapphira actually fall dead in the presence of the church. But they're not getting in trouble because they only gave 90% of what they made from this sale. Land. They're getting in trouble because they gave 90%, but they let everybody think that they had given 100%. Just a common temptation that you and I are given to all the time. We see people in our culture, in our worlds, in our families who are esteemed. I want that esteem. I want that credit. I want that honor. And Ananias and Sapphira are met with an opportunity to meet that desire. They have a desire to be lifted up in the eyes of the church just like Barnabas and the others. And they have a piece of property that they can sell. And so the opportunity and the desire comes together. It's no different than than you and I wanting honor among our friends. And so we brag. 
Now, I know that it's been a long time, probably since you were in high school, that you bragged to anybody or boasted. But in case it was last week, which it was for every single one of us, you know the feeling. We want honor. We want esteem. And so we just tell a story that gets us those two things. It's just simple temptation. Desire in us and opportunity coming together. That is temptation. We like to control things. Makes us feel better when we have control over every aspect of our life where we live in a world where we're not able to control everything. So what do we do? We worry and we're anxious about it because it gives us a sense of control. We have a desire for control and we have an opportunity to worry. Those two things come together. That is temptation in its simplest form. A twisted desire in you and I and an opportunity to meet that desire. And it's in line with James chapter 1, I want you to turn there. James chapter 1. It says this in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is, look at this, lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And the sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So we're lured and enticed by our own desires. We have these desires in us that want to be quenched. Like someone made the mistake, the terrible mistake, of giving my seven-year-old son Jackson $20. Now that doesn't seem like a big deal, except for they gave that $20 in British pounds. Now, you know, so it means A, I have to go to the bank to exchange these. I'm trying to do everything online just like you are. I don't want to make a special trip to the bank to exchange $20 that I guess is not even really mine. So, uh, so this $20 bill, this British pound, just sits, you know, in our house somewhere like a picture and will never be exchanged, unfortunately. And so Jackson believes that he is owed $20. And he talks about it all day, every day. This right now is my son's biggest need in life is to spend this $20. He thinks about it. He dreams about it. He imagines himself spending it. He, he, he tries to come up with strategies to get us to leave our comfortable living room to go to the store just so he can spend his $20. And I'm trying to put him off, right? Like, listen, why don't you save your money? You want all this big stuff. Well, big stuff expensive. So you just take your small amount of money and you save it. It turns into a big amount of money and then you can buy whatever you want. That sounds like a good strategy to me, but no, he has to spend it. It's all he talks about. Can I spend my $20 today? What about today? I know I couldn't this morning because you're busy, but right now you don't look busy. Will you take me to the store to spend my $20? (laughs) And listen, I would judge him, but I have those desires in me. So do you. The only difference is, is we have the maturity not to let those desires come out of our mouth. Or at least not to let them come out as often. We all have that desire in us. And sometimes when that desire meets an opportunity and it's not a God-given desire or it's a God-given desire that we've twisted by the brokenness of sin inside of us, and then the opportunity comes along to quench it. That is temptation. And look at what it says in verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Think about when you use the word lure. It's always in context of what? Fishing, right? You've got the lure on the end of the line. You throw it in. And what is a lure? A lure is a trick. 
You're promising that fish that there's something good for it on the end of that string. But what you know is there's something bad on the end of it for, uh, on the end of that string for that fish. It's a, it's a trap. That's what it means to be lured. And that, that, that lure is a lie. It says it's, it's food. It says it's dinner. It says it's a meal. But really, what is it? It's a hook. And a part of every temptation is a lie. Big temptations, little temptations, every single one of them has a lie attached to it. The lie might be, this is what you're missing. If you do this, this will fix everything. This will make you feel better. There won't be any fallout. No one will ever know. You remember King David in the Old Testament? All of his buddies, all of his men are off to war. He's kind of left himself all alone. He's on top of his palace where he likes to spend time. He's, he's looking over, surveying all that he owns, all that is, uh, comes underneath his authority and underneath his name. And he looks down and there's Bathsheba and she's bathing. And he has this very natural desire in him. And there's an opportunity. She's naked and he's the king. But there's massive fallout to that lure. He has to kill her husband. He's confronted by a prophet. And they lose the baby that was conceived by that night. There is always a lie attached to the temptation. So when you feel tempted, the question you need to be asking is, where is the lie? I feel like this is a good decision. This seems like a good thing to me. Where's the lie? If I do this, no one will ever know. Where is the lie? I've done it forever and ever and ever and ever. Where is the lie? There is always a lie attached to every temptation. That's the lure partnering up with our desire. There is always a hook when you are tempted. Always. When you are tempted, it looks just like a meal. It just looks like something that will sustain you. There is always a hook in it. Where is the lie? But that's just simple, everyday temptation. Your desires in you and an opportunity to meet those desires coming together. I want to show you a different kind of temptation. Turn to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. There's the daily, normal temptation. And then there is a pressurized temptation. Luke chapter 22, Jesus has been celebrating the Passover meal with his disciples in an upper room. It's the last time that he will ever eat with them. Shortly he's going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. He'll be arrested, beaten, tried, convicted, crucified. Three days later he'll be raised from the dead. And this is what he says to Peter in Luke chapter 22. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Verse 33, and Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. I want you to look back in verse 32 at the word you, Y-O-U. Look what it says, but... 
or excuse me, verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. Uh, that is a plural you. We can't see it in English. It just looks all the same. But the Bible was not written, originally written in English. This portion was written in Greek. And so if you were reading Greek, you would be able to tell that that is a plural you. So it's Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, meaning all of you, all of the disciples, that he might sift you, all of the disciples, like wheat. Verse 32, it switches. But I have prayed for you, Simon Peter. That your faith, Simon Peter, may not fail. And when you, Simon Peter, have turned again, strengthen your brothers. See, there is a sense when that temptation is, is all of us together. I mean, that's what 1 Corinthians says, says that there's no temptation that is not common to man. And so in one sense of temptation, we're all walking the same path. I promise you, whatever you feel tempted by, somebody else in this room has either felt tempted by or is currently being tempted by. We're all in this together in one sense. And then in another sense, temptation just comes down to you and doing the right thing. And that's hard for us. Because I just want somebody else to do the right thing for me. That's us in our human nature and in our culture. We want to do the right thing, but it's always easier if somebody comes along and does most of the work for us. Have you been on a boat lately? Anybody been on a boat lately? Lake, ocean, so not very many. Well, um, if you've been on a boat lately, you know the word idling. You know, shake your heads with me. Yeah, idling. Idling is when you turn the engine on to the boat and, and it starts to rumble, but you don't actually go anywhere. You have to push down the throttle. And once you push down the throttle, the boat moves. And once you pull off the throttle... You just idle. And so the boat is moving. It feels like you're going somewhere, but you're not actually going anywhere. This is the way most of us spend our lives. Not just the way most of us spend our lives. This is how we want to spend our lives. To feel like something is happening without actually going anywhere. I'll give you just a real perfect example. So we have this thing called Bayou City Nights. It's coming up this week, August 6th, 7th, and 8th, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. It's an amazing, amazing thing. So instead of doing vacation Bible school uh, just for our kids here and ministering to them and giving them another Bible story and another craft, we are inviting our whole neighborhood to come out. And so about 50 plus people or so showed up on Saturday and, and they got in vans and they went to apartment complexes and they handed out flyers so that these kids and families would come to our thing. Uh, some of the guys brought out their mowers and trimmers and they were uh, leveling this football field to make room for our recreation stuff. People coming together and building these amazing Lego blocks. It's going to be an unbelievable thing. And we get so much credit for doing this. People love it. People love, you love, I love going to a church that would do something like that. But we are having the hardest time getting people to sign up. Our community group leaders who are kind of helping lead the way with it, they're like, I'm coming and we're coming and, and I don't know if anybody else is coming. But we get so much credit because we love to go to a church that doesn't just serve ourselves but would serve our city. And yet when it actually comes down to, I need you to come and sweat with us and help us and teach a Bible story and build a craft and mow a yard and pick, a be- pick up a, a kid in a van. I need you to do all that. It's like, well, uh, you, know, uh, you know, I got to drive into work and then, and then I got to drive back out and you're asking me to drive in again. I can't do that for three days. I mean, you know how much gas is right now and, and I'm busy and I got things going on. 
No, in our human nature, we love to know that we are around people who are doing the right thing without actually us doing the right thing. It's just easier. It's idling. I feel like I'm moving, but I'm not actually moving. Sometimes we have to multiply our community groups. It's an amazing phenomenon that happens here at Bayou City Fellowship. We'll start a community group. It will start with like 20 people. Six months later, it's got like 100 people in it. Well, that's too many. feels weird to walk into a house that, you know, has people in it like sardines and fish and stuff. And so we need to multiply because we want to be a church that multiplies like that. That seems very biblical. We want to sacrifice our own comforts so that other people can be reached in the name of Jesus. And so it's like, hey, we got to start. Your group's too big. It's gone too amazing. You've done too great of a job uh, bringing people in. And now we need to multiply. We need to start a new group. And it's like, "Uh uh-huh, will you go? No, no, I'm not going. Because if I go, then like I won't see that person every week again. And then it'll be, you know, I want to go to a church with the community groups multiply and not shrink. That sounds way better. But the work of doing the right thing is always harder than just wanting to do the right thing. And that's where most of us are in this temptation. We're just idling. We're just idling along, wanting to do the right thing, wanting to resist the temptation and just hoping that you'll fight it for me. Or somebody, somehow I can live vicariously through your righteousness or you can live through my righteousness. But wanting to do the right thing and doing the right thing are not the same thing. And so, yeah, in temptation, we're all in it together. But in the moment of temptation, it's just you. And you'll have to do the right thing instead of just wanting to do the right thing. That's what's going to happen to Peter. Look at what Satan asks permission to do. Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now, I know that many of you grew up in very rural, ancient agriculture uh, situations, so you know exactly what it means to sift wheat. I'll be honest, I've read that verse a thousand times. I had no idea what it meant to sift wheat. I mean, I knew it was bad, but um, I didn't know exactly what happened. Well, it turns out they would bring the wheat in, and then you have to smash the wheat in some kind of process. And when you smash the wheat, it removes the chaff, which is like the scaly shell from away from the grain. So you don't have the, the scale anymore. You just have the grain. And then they would use the process of winnowing. Again, I know you already know this. Just a little review for most of you. But winnowing, in case you're like me and just have pretended to know such things all your life. Winnowing is when you take the grains and the chaff. You take all that stuff that you smash together. They would throw it up in the air and the wind would blow away the light chaff. And then the the heavier grain would just fall to the ground. And then they would take a sieve, which is like kind of like a filter, and they would put the grain in it, and they would shake it and shake it and shake it. And all the dirt and all the dust and all the particles would fall off the grain so that you were left with something pure. So Satan is asking to put Peter through this process. What Jesus is saying is that Peter is going to be shaken and shaken and shaken and crushed and crushed and crushed. And this is a kind of temptation. Sifting is a part of temptation. See, if you want to use your life for what matters most, if you really want to turn around one day and say, I made my life count for something that will last beyond my life, you will be sifted. If you have ever wanted to make a significant 
contribution to the kingdom of God. And I'm not talking about, yeah, I volunteer every now and then. I'm talking about you use your life squeezed of all of your usefulness. If that sounds appealing to you, if you believe that Jesus is that good, that he deserves that much of your life, then you will be sifted. You will be tested. You will be tried. Every great leader of the people of God in the Old Testament were tested. I mean, you go back to Abraham, the father of God's people. He's asked to offer his only son, Isaac, as a sacrifice. And God steps in before he does that once Abraham passed that test. David, we've already mentioned David. David was anointed the future king of Israel at a very young age. And imagine if somebody came and anointed you as a king of something. You'd be moving into that throne like ASAP. But David had to wait years and years and years and years. And even the king who was there before him began to try to kill him. He had to wait. It was a sifting process. I mean, you have Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, comes out of his baptism. Matthew chapter 4, it says the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. If you want to use your life for the things that matter the most, you will be tested because if God is going to use you, he wants you to know what is in you. And all of us have some things in our lives that are undesirable. Some chaff and some rocks and dirt and pebbles. And it's the sifting process that removes those things. If you are in a season of this kind of temptation, this sifting, it will feel like your life is upside down and wave after wave of terrible thing is happening to you. I remember when Amanda and I just first started planting the seed in our hearts of what would become this amazing church, Bayou City Fellowship. Uh, right in the beginning, uh, my appendix exploded. Now, you've maybe heard of appendix swelling and appendicitis. No, this was, they opened me up. There was no more appendix. It like burst into flames inside of me. That's how tough I am, man, that my organs <laughs> can spontaneously combust and I can just choke down the poison. It's amazing. So that happened, and it was awesome and super easy. Um, two weeks later, after my appendix exploded, uh, we were coming home from church one Sunday and got a phone call that my grandma had, uh, had a stroke, and she passed away before we could make it to Missouri in time because we headed up there immediately. And um, she was my beloved grandma, and, and she just died unexpectedly on the way home from her funeral. We stop at a friend's house in the Dallas-Fort Worth area just to spend the night to break up the trip. And my mouth just starts this, has this excruciating pain, which I know sounds so flimsy. But in the middle of the night, it's like 2 in the morning, like, I don't know what to do. You know, I don't want to wake everybody up. Like, my tooth hurts. You know, that doesn't sound, I just have choked down all this poison. Now I can't be taken out by a tooth. I'm not going to do that. But I'm in like severe pain, and so I have two options. I can curl up in a ball in their living room and cry, or I can dig through their stuff to try to find something to numb the pain. And so in the middle of the night, I'm digging through their bathroom cabinets. I'm so sorry to them. I never told them. Don't tell them. Um, <laughs> looking for something. What I found was that throat spray when you have a sore throat. You know what I'm talking about? Like it numbs it a tiny bit, but... Um, 
it didn't work very good. What I found out later is when you have an abscess in a root canal, which is what I had, uh, the, po- the, the infection, I got a lot of poison in my body apparently, the infection eats away at the bone in your face. So I know that, that you would just be able to shake that off like it wasn't a big deal. I was not able to do so. My appendix exploded. My grandma died. I got this weird abscess root canal thing going on. Finally get take that taken care of. Right after that, I'm a young uh, man and healthy for the most part. And my back just decides to not suddenly work anymore. And I know everybody has back pain, but I was there with you. And I couldn't walk. I, I, my feet hurt. I don't know. It hurt your back. And you, your feet hurt. And then my neck would hurt. And my, so it, was, it was like all summer, one right after the other. All these things individually explained, totally rational explanation. But listen, I'm not a smart guy. So if you came to this church because I'm brilliant, you need to go find another one. I'm not a smart guy. But when I start taking all of these things and putting them together, it's sifting. Because we had this tiny little seed of what would become what I think is one of the most amazing churches on this planet. But for the desirable to be separated from the undesirable, your life has to be shaken. You got to rub up against something to get all that flesh out in the open. Now, I think it's important to know what Satan's role is in temptation because he has a big one. He is in your ear or one of his Forces is in your ear when you are tempted going, yes, yes, good decision, good decision, good decision. And then you make that decision and he immediately is in your other ear going, bad decision, bad decision, bad decision. Why'd you do that? What's the matter with you? God is faithful, isn't he? That's what you come and you sing these songs. You show up to church every Sunday. Why would you do something like that? And why would Satan do that? Why would he he try to talk us into something and then he make us feel bad about actually doing it? Why would he do that? Listen, he has no allegiances. He's not a shepherd in any way. His one role is to rage against God. That's it. That is his only role in this world is to rage against God. And if he can rage against God in you, then he will. He'll he'll lead you and then he'll turn on you. He has no allegiance. So if you're looking for comfort from the one who talked you into sin, there is no comfort. You are all alone in the moment after you give into temptation. And he wants to prove in this sifting that you are unworthy. But God will use that sifting to prove that you are worthy. Satan wants to turn your life upside down to disqualify you from making your life count for what matters the most. And God is saying, because I turned your life upside down, because you got shaken, because you got pressed, it proves that you are qualified to do what matters most. God is not thwarted in his purpose when you are sifted. His purpose becomes clear like the noonday sun when you're sifted. Sometimes when you're in those moments of sifting, when your life is just shaken and stirred, sometimes it's easy to go, God, where are you? Where are you? Especially if you got into the sifting because you volunteered for one of his roles in his kingdom. It's helpful for me to go back to Job. You remember Job? 
Satan is walking the earth and he appears before God and God says, hey, you've been out there tormenting people, raging against me. Have you considered tormenting my servant Job? And Job gets sifted, maybe like no other person in the history of the world. And if I were Job, when all of that was happening to me, all that sifting, all that pain, I would have been like, God, where are you? I was a righteous man. I was an upstanding man. I tried to do what was right. I didn't just look out for me. I looked out for my kids. I looked out for my family. I looked out for the poor. I tried to live my life. Where are you? And if God, if Job could have known what we know reading that story, God is able to say to us in our moment of temptation, listen, I've not abandoned you. I believe in you more now than I ever have. In fact, I believe in you so much that that you coming through this sifting will prove just how great I am. Doesn't that give you resolve in this season of sifting? Not that God has abandoned you, but he believes in you. He believes in you enough that you are gonna come through for him. That he is willing to push you forward. Give permission for Satan to sift you. Not because he doesn't love you or because he's forsaken you, but because he believes in you and he believes in your future. I mean, Satan comes after Peter and it's obvious why Jesus said he was the rock that the church, capital C, is built on. He was the very first one to ever stand and say, Jesus has resurrected from the dead and you should believe in him. He was the first one to make that proclamation in that way. Of course, Satan is going to come and sift him. You're gonna do something with your life that is going to be really, really important. And listen, the path will be really, really hard. But the harder the path, the greater the good. The harder the path, the greater the servant. The harder the path, the more power that will radiate out of your life. So there's basic temptation and there's pressurized temptation. There's sifting. So how do we come through it? I want you to turn Mark chapter 14 to see the next piece of Peter's story. Mark chapter 14, Jesus has warned him that he's gonna be sifted like wheat and it says in verse 32 and then they went to a place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples sit here while I pray and he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled and he said to them my soul is very sorrowful even to death remain here and watch and going a little farther he fell on the ground and he prayed if it were possible that the hour might pass from him and he said Abba Father All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he, Jesus, came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. You can come through temptation when you put into practice these two things that Jesus told Peter. Watch and pray. I find it crazy that Jesus warned Peter just hours before this moment. Hey, you're going to be sifted like wheat. And yet he falls asleep. 
He can tell that Jesus is in anguish and something really important is going to happen and that Satan is coming for him, but he falls asleep. Why? Because it's easier to sleep than it is to watch. It's easier to just let whatever come into your home than it is to stand like a man or a woman at the door of your house and say, you're not coming into my home. It's easier to just look at whatever you want on the internet. It's easier just to say whatever you want. It's easier to write whatever kind of email or text message that you want. It's easier to give in to temptation than it is to resist temptation. And the spirit is willing, meaning here in this moment, sin sounds so unappealing. And we would say to ourselves, why would I ever get caught up in that? Why would I do that? I don't understand why I keep going back to that over and over again. But as soon as you leave this place, this, the, flesh is, the flesh is strong in its weakness. And it's just easier to sleep than it is to watch. And some of us need to wake up and start watching our lives. Men, if you lead a home... You stand at the door of your home like a man, a man of God, a man of prayer with gentleness and strength. And you guard what comes in and what goes out of your home. Ladies, you watch your family. You stand as watchmen over your children, as their nurturers and those who are usually more in tune to emotions and thoughts. Watch and pray. Which brings us back to the Lord's Prayer that when we're tempted, we don't have to run away from God. We should just let Him know hey, I'm right here in this same spot with these same people, and I am big time tempted. Can you drag me from here? Can you drag me from this place? Can you deliver? Do you have a vision for your life? Who, who do you want to be? I want you to think about it just for two seconds. Who, who do you want to be? What kind of man do you want to be? Women, what kind of woman do you want to be? You want to be fiery? You want to be sweet? You want to be nice? You want to be kind? You want to be funny? You want to be charming? You want to be useful? You want to pray? You want to love the word of God? What kind of person do you want to be? The last thing I want to say in this seven weeks of prayer is whatever person you want to be in Jesus' name is waiting for you on the other side of prayer. You don't just become that person by sleeping. You don't just magically turn into that person when you get older. You pray yourself through the power of God into the person that you want to be. But God has gifted you, he's called you, he's raised you up. Some of you, he has sifted, not to sleep, not to sleep, but do something that is really important in Jesus' name. So let's watch and pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the power of your word and I pray it would stir our souls deeply. pray that we would submit ourselves to it. I pray I would. 
seal your word in us. In Jesus' name, amen.